This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 458, for May 27th, 2015. We're brought to you this week by Red Hat. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. I'm Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor to Macworld, and with me is Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Hello, Susie. Hi, Glenn. How are you? Uh, still recovering from, uh, well, I didn't get, I, I was going to say from a day off, but uh, Memorial Day, like many days for freelancers, is another day. But I, I had a relaxing day and a relaxing weekend. I hope you did as well. Yeah, it was nice. That's good. It's uh, time to reflect, and uh, but news never holds still. So even while we're trying to not pay attention to the news, things are happening. And uh, we've got kind of a, a roundup of different things going on this week. There's a little bit of, I don't want to say quasi-news. I saw this uh, rumor had come out. And um, it's credible enough to talk about. It's like we, we try not to talk about rumor rumors. We talk about rumors that we believe that's, that the Macalope handles all the non, non-legitimate non rumor rumors. <laughs> we talk about the uh, legitimate ones. And uh, so there is a rumor came out that iOS 9, instead of being a um, what I was hoping for, like an incremental build that would you know build on success but wouldn't have a lot of changes so we could all just get used to things working, mm-hmm. that it would actually be sort of rebuilt from the bottom up or was being rebuilt from the bottom up so that it would work hyper-efficiently on older devices and only certain features would be available on newer devices, but it would work on uh, iOS uh, equipment back to the iPad 2 and the iPhone 4S. Does this seem credible to you? Yeah, that that seems not only credible, but kind of a good idea. Um, there's a lot of these old devices still out there, and they work just fine. Um, but, you know, people will upgrade their phones anyway because with the subsidized prices that a lot of us buy our phones in, you kind of – it's sort of to your best interest to upgrade for two years because – you're paying a subsidy as part of your bill, but then when you pay off the phone, your bill doesn't get cheaper. Um, you know, if if you have a regular like two year activation contract, um, so so it's kind of to your benefit to just keep getting a new phone. Um, but these old phones, like I mean, everyone in my family has an iPhone that I've given them. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they're all still out there, you know. And I have my mom on one that's on like iOS six, and she has the little, you know, the little one badge on the settings app saying like, hey, there's new software. And I kept telling her like, don't upgrade, don't upgrade. And she says, but I want to get rid of that number one. I'm like, you can't. It's going to be there forever. Just live with it. <laughs> so so it would be kind of nice to have, you know, a new OS that works well on older devices. Um, we've been harping on Apple. John Moltz had a really great column for Macworld a few months back about how the entry-level devices seem a little hobbled just in um, storage, especially in the iOS side, how they raise the mid-tier from um, 32 to 64 gigabytes when you buy a new iPhone, but that 16 gigabyte entry level is still around, and that's kind of not enough. So optimizing the operating system would be, would be great if you have a 16 gigabyte device or even an 8 gigabyte device that's still kicking around. So I can see it, you know, from a smaller storage. Um, it's it's great for hand-me-down devices. Well, it and gives them more life in selling uh, low storage. I mean, it gives them more of a motiva- not motivation, but, like, they can sell an 8-gigabyte device. And if it works well with 8 gigabytes, then it's less of what feels like a ripoff when, yeah. when you have a system that's not optimized for it. Totally. And then, I mean, from a security standpoint, 
new OSs are more secure generally than older OSs. And now that there's so many of these out in the world, they're, you know, they've, they've got the target on them is growing. So um, you'd, you'd get all the security updates that would come come with a new OS. So I think it's a great idea. I hope it really happens. Cause yeah, then, I, mean, I think you're... Oh, no, go well, ahead. Well, I think the yeah the, the iPhone 4S got sold for so long was one mm-hmm. of the things. And the iPad 2 was only sold for... Oh no! I'm sorry. And they could the iPad, the iPad two, 2 would not die right forever as well. Right, and they were yeah. introduced in two. Both models appeared first in 2011. The iPad two ran 4.2 point something, and uh, the iPhone 4s ran uh, 5.0. And they are both upgradable. You can use you know go back that far to 8.3 uh, and upgrade them. But they were, I've, you know, I, we have an iPad two. I don't think I've ever upgraded. I can't remember if I've gone to iOS eight or not with it because I was worried about. Performance, I think it still is iOS 7. Uh, yeah, the security thing, this is certainly something Google gets criticized for heavily. And uh, there are some people sort of, you know, stamping their feet about it as um, Google continues to release new versions of its operating system without a mandate or a way to enforce a mandate to update um, or provide backwards support or anything. So you've got uh, it's still a relatively small percentage of Android devices are running the latest system. They're about to announce Android M their 6.0 release of the OS and uh, there's all, you know, hundreds of millions of devices running outdated versions of Android without any ability to update without rooting the machine running uh, uh, Cyanamon. No, uh, this is how much of a non-Android person, Cyanogen. (laughs) Yes, yes. Cyanogen, da-da-da-da-da, Cyanogen, uh, (laughs) which has now got a lot of investment in it and there's, there's a valid path, but not all devices can be rooted and, you know, on and on and on. So, it's. I think there's a great. It's not just marketing. It's actually a security tool yeah. that they can extend the life. iOS nine comes out. It's like, look, you know, we're not always great. I mean, they're you know they don't say this, but they have some issues about supporting back very far. And like four years isn't that far. If they were to obsolete and say, no, your four year old devices can't run iOS nine, I think they'd get. At this point, they have so many people with working devices that are older. As you say, I think they'd get a hit for it. So I'm delighted to think about the that they're thinking about if this is all true. Uh, of doing this kind of optimization. And it seems very much like a building release. Like it is like a mountain lion or a snow leopard where what we were hoping for, where they're like, there may be flagship features, but the real thing is everything you like works better and the stuff you don't like doesn't work as badly or <laughs> we fixed yeah. it. Like that would be wonderful. Yeah. I mean, if, if plenty of people get their first, you know, iOS device as a hand-me-down or as, you know, the bargain one when you know, they're, they're new to the ecosystem and they don't want to pay for the new one, but they're still in the ecosystem. You know, they're buying apps, they're subscribing to services, they're um, they're participating, and then, you know, when it's time to step up, maybe they'll get the new one, but they're in the ecosystem. And the more inertia you have in one ecosystem, the less likely it is that you're going to switch. So, yeah, I mean, roll out the carpet for the old devices because they still work great. <laughs> they still have, diff- you know, decent resale value. And there's no reason to just chuck them all. I mean, iOS 6 isn't super old, but it looks old just because they went so far um, in a different direction with the flat designs in iOS 7 and iOS 8 that if you have an old device running iOS 6, like it just it just looks really old. Yeah. And it feels really old, even though it's, it's not that old. So This is part of my theory that Apple does an amazing job of retraining us so that – and I'm not sure – 
I'm sure there are other companies that do this, but I can't think of a case in which I looked at something new and then when I looked back at the old thing, it seemed ridiculously outdated mm -hmm. and horrible. Like you look at the flat, that took a while to get used to the flat interface of iOS 7. But once you do, then you go back to the more skeuomorphic stuff. And you're like, what? We, what? Yeah. And, or you, the minute you look at a retina screen and then you try to use a non-retina and you're like, oh my gosh, I can see all the pixels are 50 feet tall. So I think they retrain us and this will be nice if everyone can get a good experience. It'd be great. And uh, and we'll see. We know iOS 8 still needs work. It's certainly gotten better since its release. I have fewer complaints about it. But, um, you know, the other day I was just, I just posted a short blog entry on my own blog about, you know, I'm trying to use um, my watch and it won't pair even though the phone's there and I have to turn Bluetooth off. And then my phone springboard crashes and it relaunches, you know, it doesn't crash the phone. I've got to log back in. And then my Mac, for some reason, my new Mac, which is working great, it suddenly, uh, some Mac mini suddenly, uh, out of nowhere freezes and it logs me out. Like it crashes my user session without crashing the machine. I'm like, I think there's room for a little work on all of these operating systems. I feel like none of that really probably should have happened. And, um, and I don't remember it happening as much in the past. The watch is new, but, uh, there's some rough edges. I'm looking forward to that being smoothed down. Yeah. Uh, um, other news we have this week, of course, it came out, uh, that Johnny Ive has gotten a, promotion. He's the uh, the design guru at Apple and has been seen as kind of one of Jobs' closest uh, uh, closest collaborators and also like the person who maybe holds the flame of product design, of thinking, maybe even more than Tim Cook um, because they'd worked, I don't know that Tim, I would say from everything I've read, that Tim didn't work as closely on product development in the way that I've did. It wasn't his day in, day, day out job. Um, and that was Hive's job. So he's got a, he's, he's got a new, you know, I guess the guy could use a promotion. Maybe he needs some more money, uh, has a you know house to pay <laughs> off, something like that. But um, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, they're calling him the chief design officer, and his previous title was senior vice president of design. So I guess he's getting a new kind of layer of direct reports that are going to take some of the you know management kind of tasks off his plate. And I've heard this from, you know, even managers in my own industry that, yeah, like you're really good at what you do and they keep promoting you. And then more and more of your time goes to, you know, running your little slice of the business. Um, managing people can take a lot of time. So he's kind of, uh, I guess the, the hope is that he will have more time to do what he's really, really good at which is design. And it sounds from these articles like he's designing everything. He's designing the new headquarters. He's redesigning the Apple stores. He's designing, you know, the desks that the employees are going to use. So, yeah, I mean, if, <laughs> if that's <laughs> oh, the good. case, then, <laughs> then yeah, they should. And I mean, I think it's there's a good point to be made that Apple isn't just designing hardware and software anymore. They're designing whole experiences. I mean, looking at your watch and checking the time, buying new headphones, at an Apple store, you know, using your phone and not having to, to stand in line and check out. Um, picking out, you know, something to listen to on your, you know, Beats or your iTunes. Um, watching TV. Like, Apple is trying to put its stamp on all of these experiences, and that design goes into all of that. So, so it's really cool that they, they put so much emphasis on design, and, and they're trying to, to let Johnny do what he does best. Well, it's uh, a lot of jobs he took on were after Scott Forstall was kind of pushed out, mm -hmm. sent into the outer darkness. Uh, wow, it's almost, gosh, I didn't realize that long ago. I just looked up the date. It was uh, late 2012. And um, and that's, you know, they had that disastrous hiring of the 
low rent uh, retail guy uh, Browett to take over from the genius that was Ron Johnson, who is not yet reduplicated his uh, genius at the Apple store. Uh, and uh, so they got rid of Farstall and Browett and Angela, um, oh, I'm blanking on her name. What's her Aaron's. name? Aaron's. 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 Thanks. Thank you. Right. Who should have been on stage, we think, at the last presentation, uh, is came in as kind of, um, it was unclear, you know, she's in charge of the Apple store, uh, but it was unclear exactly what her role would be and how expansive it would be. And I feel like we still haven't heard without reading tea leaves. I mean, this new changeover, she's not un, I don't think she's under Ive in this, but I was expecting to hear more about her. Um, and it may be that sh her, what she's doing is more diffused throughout the company. Um, but yeah, but I mean, I've took on a bunch of jobs. He suddenly is in charge of the UI. He is in charge of, uh, you know, hardware design, all these things. And, um, you can imagine that it gets a little exhausting, however much you want to put all that on your plate at once. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the big promotions might be, you know, the people underneath them that they're, they're bringing them up into more leadership roles and then, you know, they, and naming them too. We usually often don't know the names of people who are yes. lower level at Apple, even just one layer down, you never hear their names. And, uh, occasionally that gets, you know, they'll bring someone on stage. This is so-and-so, uh, you know, Randy Ubilos, the right. uh, creator of, uh, you know, uh, Final Cut Pro or something and be like, oh yeah, I know that guy. And then, then you never see them again. Okay. <laughs> How was that? That's, you go back in your barn. Uh, so we may be hearing more about these other folks as well. It's also, Apple's been um, making their executives available for a lot more interviews <laughs> than yeah, they used to. the new open uh, Apple. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I have many wonderful things to say about Stephen Fry, who's a terrific actor and humanitarian and outspoken advocate for social justice he's and just human a big rights. Bear. Oh, and he's just great and uh, just love pretty much everything he's done. And he, I saw, I saw him interviewed live when he released the first movie he directed. And he's just an incredible writer. And um, but for crying out loud, he's, he's taken journalist jobs away. Let me tell you, because this was uh, the the I've uh, All news those lucrative journalism jobs. Lucrative. I mean, there are literally hundreds of dollars he's taking out of the hands of other people. Uh, but yeah, he wrote a, he wrote an interview with Johnny Ive and did a tour of uh, the new the current state of the Apple. Uh, yeah, they took him to the new HQ. He got to wear a hard hat and everything. Did you see the pictures in there? No. Oh There's no! Wait, no, I did see that photo. Stand there with Fry and Tim Cook and Johnny Ive, like Cook. standing on piles of dirt with like cranes in the background. Yes, and Fry is consulting his iPhone at some point too, while Cook is standing there. It's like, um, yeah, the yeah. Guy? he's right there. He's right there. <laughs> yeah, it's a good article. That's in the Telegraph, and we'll have the, the yeah, we'll put the link notes. in the show notes. It's definitely worth reading in a yeah. adorable Stephen Fry way. So uh, thanks to this week's sponsor, Red Hat. Uh, you may have heard of Red Hat or seen their nice logo of a fedora, beautifully drawn fedora. And I've been using Red Hat for, oh, I don't know, I think at least 15 years. It's almost the beginning. And the thing is, I'm not alone in having used Red Hat in the past or the present because Red Hat, you think of Linux as an open source system that's widely available. And this is true. But what Red Hat Enterprise Linux offers you is something more. They offer you the support that you need to deploy enterprise-grade solutions. Red Hat runs in every executive department of the U.S. federal government, runs in every airline, telecom giant, healthcare company in the Fortune Global 500, the New York Stock Exchange, every commercial bank in the Fortune 500. In fact, more than 90% of all the companies in the Fortune 500 use Red Hat for everything from the critical to the routine. They offer you everything you need. They, Red Hat offers storage solutions, cloud computing, uh, help with application development. It's all open source. It's all enterprise grade. I think the thing is, 
people don't necessarily know that Red Hat is behind the scenes because they think of Linux as this thing that floats out that is available. But if you're deploying systems and you need reliability and you need support, Red Hat Enterprise Linux is the best of all possible worlds because you get the benefit of all the development of open source coming from both commercial companies like IBM and others uh, and the benefits of people being able to fix and find things and improve things. I mean, Linux has come a long, long way since its early days. It's uh, available now in bulletproof supported versions. And Red Hat Enterprise Linux is the name you can trust because they've been there all along. Red Hat has been quietly redefining enterprise technology, and you can find out more about how they're doing that at redhat.com. Red Hat, build on it, run with it, count on it. And thanks to Red Hat for being our sponsor this week. Something that came up uh, recently, we uh, we're going to talk about just a little bit, is um, the notion of reviews. Because MacWorld has a deep, deep history and a deep bench of reviewing products. So Jason Snell wrote a column for MacWorld, and and Jason, of course, had been uh, involved with MacWorld and Mac User before it for twenty years. He has a deep knowledge of how reviews. Uh, work and he wrote a reflection on Brian X. Chen, also a former Macworld person now at the New York Times uh, experience with trying to get service for a well-reviewed Samsung oven he purchased and it wound up being a complete nightmare and he didn't pull out the press card. Brian waited until he'd actually gotten resolution and then called and said, look, it's called the PR department and said, look, this is what I went through. Uh, should people go through this? <laughs> and they're like, no, no, they shouldn't. And um, I thought it might be worth talking about reviews a little bit because I think uh, I think there's some confusion about what reviews mean in an age of uh, being able to go to Amazon and look at other people's reviews and in which so many sites review things. We, you know, I think you probably have a strong opinion about this, working for a publication that produces reviews regularly, but, but what's the importance of reviews today when there's so many opinions out there? Well, I mean, reviews are still important because there's so many things to buy. And I liked how Jason um, was was basically arguing that reviews are never going to be perfect because, as Brian found, the reviews of the product barely ever mention reviews of the service. I mean, even Consumer Reports doesn't put that together. Like, they review products and they review companies' customer service, but you have to kind of look them up separately. So once you found, you mean, you're like, okay, this Samsung oven, like, this is the one I'm going to get. It might, you know, if you're not already familiar with, uh, if you don't already have a bunch of Samsung products and you don't have a lot of experience with that company, it might be smart to look up, you know, what people have gone through when their Samsung thing goes wrong. And we're not, you know, making, it, it could have been anyone's oven. It could have been a Whirlpool or a GE or whatever. It, it doesn't matter that it's Samsung because I know Apple people are like, haha, Samsung. Oh, but, I know. And <laughs> Samsung is like, you know, this is the, uh, I forget what they're called in uh, South Korea, but there's like, uh, you know, massively integrated companies that make right. 400,000 different things. And Samsung is the title at the top, but there's, you know, they're almost different businesses with a conglomerate yeah. you know, CEO at the top. It's a, a, basically a different company than the ones who make the phones. So all the money goes to the same people, but that's, that's the only. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so yeah, it is really hard. I mean, when, when your product, when you have a review product and it's not working the way it should, it's it you know it's really hard to test service because yeah if you're doing a review product and they know that you have a problem with it they're going to treat you different than they would just a regular customer you know isn't going to write an article that thousands of people are going to read. I really like Jason's point in his article that product reviews are never going to be perfect because they can't take you know every contingency into account. You know if you have no problems with it. Someone else has a lot of problems with it. That doesn't mean that your review was wrong. But he thinks that in you know now that anyone can write a review, there's so many more blogs and tech publications that are doing reviews that 
we've sort of gotten past the idea that this review is definitive and this review is unbiased and this is, you know, the last word on something. Now we are kind of being more honest about the fact that this is just one person's experience and one person's opinion. And you can get, you know, more scientific with it. Computers can be benchmarked. Um, Some publications have a few people review something and kind of compare experiences. Um, I really love what the wire cutter does where they take reviews that people have written. They take, um, you know, users on Amazon. They take reviews that professionals have written. And they use that as a jumping off point to create a short list of things that they then test and retest and retest before coming up with, you know, what they think is is the one thing you should buy. And then people still, you know, aren't satisfied with that and say, well, I, I disagree. I think these other headphones are better. And so there, there's room for so much more opinions, but it does make it kind of hard if you're just, you know, the consumer who wants to know which oven to buy. So, yeah, we're kind of in the golden age of reviews because they're everywhere. But, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really tough to, to get the whole story, especially, you know, what happens when something goes wrong. It's hard to dial in as a, a user to find someone who has exactly the same ideas about things that you do or I think that exposes their ideas well enough. And I I think this is the critical thing for reviewing for me. It's what I try to do is either I expose my own bias and say, you know, I don't like keyboards like this. So I tried it and Mm -hmm. I think it's a great keyboard, but it doesn't work for me. Or I'll say... Uh, you know, I I prefer this, or I've always done this. So I asked 15 people I know, and I got their opinions. And you know, if if it's a product people are using, I can ask them about their experience. But people I trust and know to be rigorous and provide, you know, I can collate that a little, or I can use Twitter now and say. I had this strange thing happen with product X. Is anyone else having it? And I'll get 50 people say no, never, or 50 people say, oh, yes, but I rarely get, you know, the outlier. I can usually confirm whether my experience is the outlying one or not, which you can see in reviewing. Uh, So I try to tell people, you know, you can't be the universal. I think that was Jason's point, too, is reviews are now very personal, and you're sort of seeing that. uh, We're not consumer reports. Um, Consumer reports has a mission, and it's I think is continuing to maybe find a hard road a hoe right now too because they want to test everything in their labs it's very expensive to run those and with a multiplicity of opinions um, and maybe even a little bit of the wisdom of the crowd like if you go to amazon I, i always recommend i think the most important thing at Yelp and Amazon and some other sites is the histogram, the distribution of reviews mm-hmm. by quantity. And if I go to Amazon and I see like maybe a ton of five stars, so the five star bar is huge, but the one star bar is huge, I'm going to read reviews and figure out because sometimes what that means is they did a production change, uh, you know, six months ago and the product's been out for years. And since six months ago, it's all one star reviews. They messed something up. Or there's something that when it breaks, the company doesn't respond well. So I think Brian's experience with the the oven, he couldn't determine how well his particular problem we solved, which was really severe. I mean, there was melting and it was like, it's the kind of problem you're just astonished that it didn't get escalated the minute the word fire was mentioned. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. he had an oven installed <gasps> next to some cabinets, which is where a lot of people put ovens and there was a heat problem and it didn't cause a fire, but it melted part of his cabinet and just caused thousands of dollars worth of damage. He said that the technician had to come out like seven seven times to figure out what was wrong with it. So, and they have a broken yeah, process because the technician problem. wasn't able to, he wasn't able to bump it up the the system. So, uh, so I wonder, like, so Consumer Reports is absolutely 
valid, but the histogram, I mean, I've found great restaurants, but again, I look for Yelp and I see if there's lots of outliers. If you have a, if you have a review and the histogram shows 80 or 90% four and five stars and you read through and it's good, it's like, that's usually that's usually a good indicator if there's a sufficient number. Mm-hmm. If there's 500 reviews at Amazon, no one's able to fake that many and keep them up there. So even if a company's <laughs> trying to game the system and big companies don't fake their reviews, smaller ones, you can find independent ones that sometimes try to do it. You'll see 15 reviews. They're like, yes, very good product. Love this. Terrific. Five stars. Buy again. You know, you're like, all right, maybe you didn't invest enough money into faking it. But, uh, but it's those outlying the, the ones and twos. And, um, I've avoided buying some products and I've had, uh, other issues where something's come up and I've checked and went, oh, I should have checked because it's a typical thing. So the Samsung oven, I don't think there was a way for him to know because I think he was an outlier and it's as awful, mm-hmm. but I don't think you can, f- there's no place you can go and say, uh, uh, find a- equivalent repair experiences. I think Jason honed in on that as well is that it's, it's really difficult to know what happens when things go wrong. Um, one of the advantages I think we have, uh, at Macworld, um, both me as a as a freelancer, does a lot of reviewing and all the freelancers who work with you and then, and then staff is we go through so many products that we often experience something. If we're reviewing a bunch of stuff for one company or multiple people are using the same product, maybe one for review, but others use it routinely, we start to get a sense of the experience with a company and how they're going to perform and, and start calling them to task if there's real issues too. Yeah. Yeah. I liked what you said about making the reviews more personal. I mean, that's something that I try to do. Like I just reviewed the last big thing I reviewed was the Apple watch and that was a really hard product for me to review. The most because, personal review ever. Yeah. Cause it's so <laughs> personal. So it's, it's to the reader's advantage if they know me a little bit and I can get that across to like, okay, here's the things that I thought were, were cool about it. Here's the things that annoyed me about it. And then if you understand me a little bit, you can kind of get where I'm coming from. And then you can decide if the things that annoyed me would annoy you <laughs> or if the things that I liked would, you know, please you. Or if you're like, I don't listen to podcasts in the car, like stop talking about how great the tapping on your wrist is for the turn by turn. So, yeah, it's it, having a more personal relationship with a reviewer can can really, really help. And um, as far as reading Amazon reviews, I still read tons of Amazon reviews. I like to read the ones that are like three stars. Oh. Because then oh. those reviews sometimes, not always, but sometimes can be a little more balanced. Like they like some things about it. They didn't like other things about it. And so like, some of the times you read the five-star ones and they're like, I just got it. It looks great. I haven't really used it yet. And then, you know, some of the one-star ones are just written by crazy people. So well, they, Amazon had that ability to follow up sort of so that people would write a review later and uh, mm-hmm. be able to say like, okay, I've had this for two years. The battery broke. And when I talked to the company, they laughed at me at the phone and hung up. And yeah. Like, oh, okay. That's Those are really, sign. really helpful. And then sometimes people are like, yeah, I used to have one of these and, you know, I bought it in the 70s and it lasted forever. And then it finally broke and I bought the new one. And guess what? They outsourced the manufacturing and the quality isn't what it used to be. And even though this product has a great reputation, I'm here to tell you that it's gone down the tubes. So you know, what's funny is really that we've, center- well, I'm sorry, we've centralized on Amazon as a review source because I, I think they're actually – uh, pretty good about not reviewing bad reviews because mm-hmm. I read some really, I mean, uh, so disclosure, uh, when I worked at Amazon t- almost 20 years ago, I was in charge of that part. Oh, I didn't really? set po- Yeah, I didn't set policy, but I was involved in setting it up. There were already reviews there and uh, I was the uh, catalog manager and anything that appeared on catalog pages was in my purview. So it was a fun job. They Last do a very good sh- job. I mean, even if I'm not yeah. going to buy something on Amazon, like if they sell it, I'll pop over and just see what 
people are saying. Oh, yeah. It's, it's the reverse showrooming, right? Showrooming is when you go to a physical store and you look at stuff, then you buy it from Amazon. Mm-hmm. We do reverse showrooming because you go to Amazon, you yeah. look at the reviews, which I don't care. Sure, look at the reviews. It costs them one millionth of a cent. And then you buy it somewhere else. You buy it, you know, in, in real life. But uh, but I think they, they're not – it's not that the reviews are unbiased, that Amazon doesn't uh, – I don't know if I should use the word censor. They do not delete reviews uh, in favor of companies that make products because you will find companies that you know and I know in real life get incredibly upset about negative reviews or any comment. They're like very, very, very picky companies and you'll find tons of bad reviews of their products. So they are certainly not getting those removed. And what Amazon does, they use that as leverage to get the products improved. And I think despite Amazon's reputation and reality as a sort of rampaging giant <laughs> company that's eating the world, um, they also... Uh, have, I think, improved things for consumers because they reveal this information so boldly, it forces companies to make changes because otherwise they're sitting there with, you know, 2,000 one-star reviews and then they can't, and then people use that as the referring source. So like, yeah. I don't know if, I don't know if Yelp has been as positive a force on restaurants. <laughs> Too much revenge there, but, uh, but I think Amazon has helped, has helped. And, and you mentioned the wire cutter. There's no, you know, we talk about them all the time because I think they've become, uh, you know, we're not affiliated with them, but, uh, the approach they take is somewhere between consumer reports and what we do is they put enormous amount of time into testing to produce a small number of words and then they make their money from affiliate links. So they're not trying to sell stuff that's bad. They're trying to sell stuff that's good. But there's a little bit of a not sell stuff, but like they're trying to refer people over and they don't need to publish uh, a lot. You know, they're not a uh, like we're going to publish 50 posts a day kind of publication. That's not their model. They're not a news publication, right? So they can put uh, they can backload a lot of the time. Um, into it. And in the glory days of print, when there was money pouring into every, you know, portal for print, I know that was also a possibility at Macworld and and, and many other publications could have labs that did that because the the pipes lined up, the print ad pipes lined up and people would come to Macworld. They would buy the issue of Macworld, uh, you know, in 2001 with the latest product in it to say, "Well, well, what about this iMac? Does it work? And it would have pages of testing. So we've sort of, you know, crowdsourced some of that now. Um, and, uh, as well as have Amazon as a resource and Wirecutter, and there's more things you can coordinate on to let people know about the quality of something, even if you're not sure you can identify the features they like. Yeah, and we're lucky because, you know, the the people listening here, we all buy Apple stuff. and <laughs> Quality's generally... <laughs> they yeah. have well, good quality and pretty good customer service. Yeah, um, I mean, sometimes they biff things where, you know, there's something wrong and it takes a while to get them to have an extended warranty program for it. Um, I was just... Uh, I've been researching... Uh, the uh, story for another publication, a business story about um, the uh, Digital Millennium Copyright Act has, uh, which is a terrible law. I'm going to say that I have an opinion. It's a terrible law uh, because it makes, it lumps together any potential legal use of um, copyright with all illegal uses. So the DMCA makes criminals of us all. We're all, we're basically all are violating the DMCA every day. And that's a bad law. You can't, you you shouldn't make a law that makes us all criminals and pirates. Um, But there's a bit of it about anti-circumvention where you're not allowed to reverse engineer digital rights management or other electronic locks that protect software or media and so forth. And um, there's these funny cases where uh, 
you know, a product breaks, like the Xbox 360 is one of the big cases here. It's illegal to mm -hmm. circumvent the protection on it. However, in order to fix the old red ring of death problem, which affected between 25 and 50% of all the units that were sold, and Microsoft repaired them under extended warranty a long time ago, but these units were basically trash unless you could break the DRM in order to uh, install some, you know, minor fix. Like there was something you'd have to circumvent Microsoft, but the law made it illegal. So you're a criminal when you do something to repair your own equipment. So that kind of thing is bad. Yeah. <laughs> and, and Apple's gotten around that by soldering RAM and uh, making it hard to uh, you know, repair its stuff at some level. I don't know if it's gotten around it, but it also means it's it's cheaper, lighter, faster, better, but almost impossible to repair a lot of stuff that they make now. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk briefly about Marco Arment's uh, MacBook review because I think it was a good um, – it, it sort of came up in the same context as Brian Chen's uh, uh, oven story and Jason's uh, – column for Macworld is uh, Marco uh, bought a new 12-inch MacBook and he really did not like it and he returned it and he wrote a really interesting review about it and Marco often causes people to get very angry because he states his own opinion and says it's his own opinion and people read it as if he's generalizing for all human beings everywhere <laughs> and uh, they get angry. what do you mean that no one should buy this like no no I didn't like it I didn't like the keyboard. I returned it. It's like no one should buy it that's a ridiculous statement so I think there was a little bit of blowback from that, but I also wanted to like pick apart a little. Like he didn't like a number of things about it, uh, and I think there's, I don't think he lived with it enough. But it's a weird thing to say. It's like no, you that the computer you bought, you should have kept it longer because you would have <laughs> liked it better. Like no, you're he's a, he was acting as a consumer, and then he wrote an article about his experience when um, you wrote the review of the 12 inch MacBook, and then I wrote a kind of like two week, three week follow up, and I think our experiences were different. We're approaching it in a somewhat different way because we're trying to understand what our audience would get out of it. I mean, how did you approach uh, all the sort of odd features of the new MacBook as compared to previous ones to, to relate that to readers? Well, I got really lucky. I wrote the hands-on after the event, but then Jason Snell wrote the actual review. Oh, that's right. We wrote three. We wrote hands-on. Jason yeah, wrote. I did. Jason lived with it for a couple weeks, I think. So the hands-on is the way to go because you, you <laughs> get like half an hour with it, and then you're just like, okay, well, I had half an hour with it, and you, no one really expects you to be comprehensive. You can just say, yeah, the key, here's how the keyboard is different, and here's my snap judgment on it. But we'll see when we really get it and we can use it. And you can kind of just punt on all the really hard stuff. So Jason I, I came in and wrote out. a really good review. Apple gave him the computer early. So yeah, he had it for the embargo. For, he had it for a week or two weeks. He had it for enough time to spend serious time with it. I think yeah. he had for over a he week he made it. He didn't do a lot his... of like, ben, you know, like battery testing. He did like some light, you know, Geekbench benchmarking. But he didn't. Um, he, he, it was mostly just like, yeah, I've had this for a couple of weeks. So it was still like an early review. And then I liked how you came in and said, okay, like after a while, after, you know, the smoke's kind of cleared and you've gotten used to the trackpad and you've learned to type on the keyboard here, here's the, the rest of it. You know, you got more into the adapter ecosystem because there just weren't any adapters when Jason wrote his review. So that's right. He couldn't connect external monitors and, uh, yeah, yeah it's, yeah, the, I think it's, uh, that, the, so I think that's one of the things that Marco's, uh, review or, or critique, um, brings up is that, uh, what he did wasn't bad. I would never criticize someone writing about their own experience, A, and B, he was writing about his own particular needs and, and he exposed his needs. He explained mm -hmm. what he likes. And if you don't align with his needs, then his experience may not relate to yours. And that's, right. I think that's a critical thing. But there's something that came up where he talked about he did not like the force touch uh, 
touchpad, a trackpad. And I wonder if he had a defective unit. We've heard that with the watch, some of the watches of a haptic. John Gruber got a a watch review unit. Excuse me. Uh, John Gruber got a watch review unit that had a a failure in the haptic motor, and they replaced it. You know, it was under embargo. Uh, And then he was like, oh, this is what it's supposed to feel like. And occasionally he's getting reports that he'll note on Twitter from people with that. A very few number of, you know, watches have this issue. And the way Marco described the touch, the force touch, I'm thinking that is not my experience. So either he doesn't like the feel and it doesn't fool him, which is, which is absolutely a thing that could happen. And then that becomes interesting to me. How many people does haptic touch not work for? I'm really interested in that because that's a technology that's really pushing forward, not Apple, but everybody. And then, um, the other is if it was defective, uh, is, are there a lot uh, of you know MacBooks that have defective ones and people are having trouble because I'll tell you and I know you've used the same thing. Uh, I completely forgot almost instantly that there's a motor under there. I yeah. always think I'm clicking and I'm I'm clicking. I was doing um, doing InDesign. I'm working on a two thousand page InDesign ebook right. And not only is it capable of doing that, and I'm having no problems and not waiting for it, sitting there to redraw and stuff. But also like I'm you click like crazy. InDesign's a very click heavy program. You're clicking and double clicking, triple clicking to select paragraphs. And last night I was working on it and I thought, you know, I've completely, utterly believe this is a mechanical thing. So I didn't mm-hmm. have that reaction at all. But that doesn't make his reaction unjustified. It just pokes questions for me about what that means for the that kind of device. Yeah, this is a really interesting review and I kind of had that that thought too um because so he starts out saying okay like i'm a developer i have a retina macbook pro and i do development on it this i wanted to be my really light machine basically my ipad pro so i can do email and surf the web and take it on trips when i don't plan on using xcode for anything so so he's He's very honest about what he expected from it, and then yeah. he goes through and just lists all the ways it didn't lead up to it didn't meet his expectations. So it really succeeds from that. But then, yeah, when he talks about the trackpad, um, the the click just doesn't feel as good to him. It feels too mushy. the The vibration doesn't really feel like a click. And he adjusted, he tried, you know, he did the things you do. You adjust mm-hmm. the settings. He made sure everything, you know, was there. And Yeah. So that's, that is different than the experience that I had with the Force. And everyone I, I know, just, you know, anecdotally, who has the Force Touch trackpad, um, Roman Loyola is trying it now on the new uh, 13-inch MacBook Pro. We just posted that review this morning. Um, everybody really, really likes it. So, but Marco is also like kind of notoriously picky about things. And that's why he is such a good reviewer because he, he's just, he's kind of a nitpicker. Like he really well, wants he, everything to be perfect, which is great. He, he won't cut slack. And I think it's great. Cause you know, the, the fanboy thing drives me nuts. It's like, well, you know, people, uh, uncritical acceptance of everything Apple does, blah, mm-hmm. blah. And you're like, well, no, obviously you've never listened or read or anything that John Gruber or, or Marco or John Syracuse or this whole crowd of people who are called fanboys. Marco Marco is incredibly critical of everything Apple does in the sense of that he critiques it. He expects the best from them. And if it doesn't meet the very high standard he sets, then he's, you know, he sold his, uh, his, the, uh, uh, Mac pro, he, he sold it. He got one. And I think he's using an iMac, uh, now as his primary machine, if I remember right. Um, because, uh, I think that's right because he, the Mac Pro didn't have enough of an advantage for him relative to what he wanted. And I think he wanted the screen as well. So, uh, yeah, I think he's very picky in the right way. He's not picking at things that are unimportant. He's he's picking at things that he wants to be perfect. And if they're not, why why yeah. do it? 
Yeah, and people can get kind of ahead of themselves when reviewing Apple products too, and I think he doesn't do that, so that's a, a great thing about his reviews. Um, I, I saw this a lot when people were reviewing the Apple Watch, and a little bit um, to a lesser extent with the MacBook too, is that people are kind of already looking down the line a little bit and saying, okay, like when the ecosystem catches up, this is going to be great. Or like when there's a really good yeah. dock for this, this is going to be great. Okay, like the next version of the Apple Watch that has GPS in it is going to be great. And it's like, yeah, I mean, Apple has a great track record, and I'm sure that these products are going to come into their own, but we still have to review the one that they shipped us. <laughs> you know, we this have to review it as it exists today without, you know, without anything else because that's what you're spending your money on. Oh, so you know, it, I really like this review a lot. It was it was really good. I think ecosystem is interesting with the MacBook because it's still developing. Oh, there's actually there's one other thing I want to say about the keyboard is he really hated it, and some people do really hate it. I think there's a huge flaw with the keyboard that is not in its actual design. I think you have to use it for an extended period to get used to it. And that is terrible from a product standpoint. So I'm not mm -hmm. going to tell. So Apple has a 14-day return policy. Uh, a Macworld reader wrote me and said, uh, after I mentioned that in an article recently, by the way, they said, no, no, I went to the store. And they said it was a 30-day return policy. I'm like, huh. And I looked it up. And uh, I think in some states, they may have to offer the same duration return policy for all items. So if there's a 30-day oh. return requirement for one kind of thing they sell, they have to offer it for all of them. Online, the store policy for both retail stores and the online store is 14-day return. So your mileage may vary, but that was interesting. So he was told in a store, no, you have 30 days to return this product if you buy it. And um, he was going to hold them to it, and they probably would honor it if someone told him that. Uh, but, uh, but within 14 days, could you actually get used to this keyboard. And I think it's a product flaw in that the first week, I mean, I wrote about it in my, you know, follow-up review or, or, you know, living with the MacBook. Um, and I, you've probably seen this too. I think other MacBook people I've talked to have the first week I sort of hated the keyboard. Like I didn't hate it. I didn't love it. I found it complicated. I was hurting my wrists because of trying to adjust the tension. And again, like last night, I'm, I don't know, four weeks into it. I was typing away like mad last night. And I'm like, oh, I don't notice anymore. The keyboard disappeared. The keyboard was way too present for the first week or so. Then it started to become invisible. Now I don't remember I'm typing anymore. The same way I almost instantly, within a moments, I'd completely forgotten about the force touch. That's difficult. And you can't convey that in a review. Like, hey, yeah, go buy this thing. And in two weeks, you might actually like the keyboard. But I don't know. <laughs> oh, jeez. Can you tell someone that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the MacBook Air and MacBook Pro keyboards have been unchanged for so long that it's, it's definitely definitely jarring at, at the beginning. So I don't know if he used it enough to get used to it. He seems to say that he, you know, he, he's used to it. He just still doesn't like it. He's Which like, is totally fine. I can fine. type on the MacBook, but I'd rather not. So yeah, yeah I, I, I thought he did a good job of just explaining like why he's returning his. And it's, it's very internet that people are, you know, saying, well, well, yeah, but that's, that's all good for you. But what about, you know, my special snowflake situation? So it's just tricky. It's like most, I think a lot of Macs, you can go into a Apple store or another store and test it out within a half an hour, figure out whether it's the right thing for you. And, you know, even look at benchmarks to make sure this one I think is defies a quick test. And that is, I think it's troubling. And I don't know, we, they're not going to break out the sales figures. We won't know. What we'll see is how they develop it. Like if this becomes the only model like this that Apple ever releases and they don't ever talk about it again, we'll be like, okay, so maybe this was a failed experiment. They pushed too hard and now the MacBook Air becomes the flagship lightweight one again. You never know. And that's mm -hmm. how Apple signals. Or they may go all in and say, ah, we don't care. This is what we're going to do. They also do that. So we may not 
ever actually know how well it sells, but we will know sort of uh, in our census of airports and uh, coffee shops, we'll see how other people adopt it or not. Oh, I had one more thing to say about the ecosystem because, uh, you know, I've been tracking USB-C devices really closely. And uh, what's kind of fun is we're starting to see the announcements in Anchor, that's A-N-K-E-R, uh, which makes a whole variety of uh, USB battery packs and cables and hubs and things. They just announced their whole, they said, okay, we're going all in. And they have, I think, 14 things that'll be USB-C. Some are shipping now. I'll have some hubs and things to test soon. And uh, some are shipping in the future. But one of them is a 26,000 milliampere hour USB portable battery. Yeah. They make the best batteries. That's, you know, I just bought, uh, again, on Wirecutter's recommendation, I bought the uh, Gen 2 Astro. can't remember its name. It's 30 bucks. It's 10 or 11,000 milliampere hours, which is essentially enough to recharge, uh, fully recharge almost any iPad. The the MacBook, the 12-inch MacBook's battery is under 6,000 milliampere hours for comparison. So even though you can't, uh, USB 2.0 won't let you pull a full charge, you could probably recharge your MacBook overnight or trickle charge it and keep it from running down as fast from the current battery, even with USB 2.0. With the new batteries, with 26 ampere hours, you'll be able, essentially, you could have, you know, two computers, an iPad, and multiple phones, and charge them all back up full, um, you know, so you could be traveling for a full day, run everything down, or longer, run everything down, and recharge them all from a single charge and a battery like that, with you, and it'll be USB-C and uh, USB 2.0 ports, so that, that kind of stuff is coming, and that's going to make our lives better. Wow. Yeah. yeah, they have a lightning cable. I'm excited about that. It's I know it's going to be it's going to be all uh, all different. And there's a there's a unsubstantiated rumor uh, that uh, another a new iPad like an iPad Pro or something will have USB C. So we'll see. I don't know if Apple's ready to switch its ecosystem there that rapidly. If there's enough of an advantage, but uh, USB C, it's the future. Yeah, I was writing about those iPad rumors last Friday, and it was funny because for every really good one like USB C, there was one like, and it's going to have a interface for keyboards and mice and you're just like wait what four speakers <laughs> i mean one speaker on every edge i'm like no there isn't the no there speaker isn't thing was kind of cool but like like why would you use a mouse with a tablet no. that's crazy talk so they could have speaker grills they could i can't imagine they would have four speakers one on each edge for rotation i think they could have some kind of rerouting system with like yeah you know one amp that would feed diff- i don't know it's just coming was, out the back or something it'll have 14 cameras on it <laughs> Uh, well, so we have one other thing we we're going to talk about. It was a uh, reader uh, suggestion. And it comes out of a review I uh, wrote of a product a few weeks ago. Uh, and it's something that we, we, I think we're talking about a lot because we're sort of waiting for things to be announced. But it's how do we watch television? Uh, and uh, what I wrote about was um, this new kind of device. Uh, not, I shouldn't say exactly new, but it's not. it hasn't been out for that long. HD Home Run is uh, the product line. It's from Silicon Dust. And they uh, they make networked TV tuners, which is fascinating because I used to get the I, the EYE TV, ITV mm-hmm. from Elgato, and Elgato has um, not is no longer selling in the U.S. market. Uh, digital over-the-air broadcasting is a, is now you know the uh, the law of the land here in America, uh, but it's existed for longer with more sophistication in um, other countries, especially across Europe. And I think they've decided to focus on those markets. Maybe there's not enough people tuning in OTA over the air here. Uh, so, um, so Elgato makes ITV software that will work with a lot of different kinds of tuning stuff, including their own. And HD Home Run is compatible 
with it. So, <laughs> so I got this thing. It has two tuners, <clears throat> and you can actually put multiple of, of them on the same network. It connects via Ethernet, and you plug it into an antenna. They make a model that will take a cable card uh, and, and can tune three streams off the cable card. Or there's two different two-tuner models. One is uh, sort of streams the unencoded video over the air, and you have to use encoding software like ITV to capture and compress it or grab it or whatever. And the other that's slightly more expensive does um, uh, H.264 encoding in stream. So it receives the TV signal, it re-encodes it using hardware, and then feeds you a compressed high quality uh, a signal that you can then use um, on, you know, natively on iOS and other devices. So I was kind of intrigued by this because uh, we'd had an El uh, uh, Elgato seem to fail. It was years and years old. So I got one of these out of curiosity and then uh, was really impressed by it as a way to bring in, uh, you know, without the same fuss of having to anchor to a computer. And um, I'd only had a single tuner before and I've got two tuners. And like I said, you could put multiple, you can have different computers on the network can connect to it. You can connect from any supported software. So I was able to use the free VLC software to tune in live. There's uh, iOS software that lets you tune in live. You can record stuff with various kinds of digital, uh, you know, personal video recorder software on a Mac or a PC. Um, is that is that intriguing to you? You probably have. Do you have cable where you're at? I I have ab abjured paying Comcast for television right now. Yeah, me too. Um, I moved into my house like two years ago, and we said, let's not get cable and see if we miss it or not. And we haven't missed it. So and you save, what, like $1,000 a year or something and not having cable? It seems like a lot, yeah. I'm still paying Comcast for my internet, so I had you know the cheap intro plan, and then it went up, and I haven't bothered to call them yet and argue it you, back down. What do you pay per month for internet service? I think it's like 60 bucks now. It was 30 yeah, and then they, they doubled it on me. So I, pay, I pay that too. It's I my like fault for not calling. They even said, oh, they're like, it's going to wear, we're going to give you a pr promotional price. It'll wear out. Call us up and, and we'll give you another one. And oh man. I haven't so you gotta, done that. So. Yeah. Um, they know me. They know I'm lazy. Um, so anyway, <laughs> That's yeah, how they we, make do, their money. we do Netflix, Amazon and Hulu and HBO now. And there's so much to watch. Every once in a while, we'll buy a season on iTunes, like Top Chef or Mad Men or something, um, if I really want to see it and I don't want to deal with all the different other you know, sites. Like I think yeah, I can watch Top Chef on Bravo, but it's only on the iPad. It's, it's, it's kind of a pain. They're still I, – I really would love them to centralize the offerings a little better, maybe have like one queue where you can have – you know, I want to watch this show on Netflix and this show on, on Hulu. I actually just have a reminders list in my reminders app on my phone that says, like, here's the oh. shows that you like and where you can find them. Because that's that's harder to do than it should be. But anyway, yes, we, cor we, we cut the cord and we're not getting OTA. So your review of the HD Home Run was really interesting to me because I could put an antenna on my house. I just haven't really... We had a satellite up there, so I ripped that down and put an antenna up there, but I couldn't figure out like where it comes into my house because the cable that comes in is for Comcast, so I don't know where the cable comes in from the antenna. And I hired a guy. I, I was I, I tried to, to figure it out. Like uh, our roof is steeply enough pitched, and we're in. A, I think I mentioned this on a, on a previous episode of this podcast. We're in a TV shadow, so uh, yeah. the towers at the top. We're at the bottom of the hill, so we're we have to have it on the roof, and we have to point like. You know, at a very high angle, uh, and it needs to be like in this weird place. I'm like, I'm in my late 40s. I'm not getting on a ladder. Um, true, true story. My mother came to visit years ago. She came up from Oregon, where they, my folks lived at the time, and uh, when we had baby, our first baby, and we said, so uh, what's dad doing while 
well, uh, you're up. And she said, I don't know, but he's not on the roof. Because <laughs> he'd fallen off the roof and he cracked a rib. You know, he was Ouch. cleaning. He was in his late 50s, early 60s at that point. We're like, all right. We're like, that was the funniest thing. Ever. Like, so he, I don't know, but he's not on the roof. So I'm not getting on the roof to put the antenna on. But we found a guy who does, uh, he's retired um, Boeing guy. And for fun, he's retired and he's doing like home installations and stuff. So he came on, he charged me a very reasonable amount of money. He put the thing up there. He mounted it and uh, ran a cord. It's a passive uh uh, what do they call that? A A H. Oh, I've forgotten the standard. It's a DTV. It's the. It's not NTSC. It's ATSC. I think is technically what it is. Uh, and with the Elgato, it actually I think because it was aging and was older, it didn't tune as well over time, and it got worse. Uh, and I don't know if that affected like how, where the TV towers were or whatever. Once I got the HD home run, it has better discriminating circuitry maybe or something. And mm -hmm. uh, it tunes everything. Uh, we don't get the same problems we had actually getting a crisp uh, or non-jittery, um, non-pixelated um, signal. So it's pretty slick. So yeah, get find a guy or a gal who's willing to go on your roof. Yeah, I could do that. Staple the antenna in there. I'm trying and, to think uh, if I miss anything from broadcast TV. Like, Saturday I don't, Night I Live. I never really watch. Yeah, I, that's on uh, Hulu. Basically, I don't. Well, yeah, but you have to watch their crummy. I that's mean, they true. sometimes the they drop the musical are numbers. So annoying. That, I I would say like we never subscribed to. We I tried subscribing to Hulu Plus for a little while, and it was too annoying with the commercials. I'm like, I'm paying, and you're showing me terrible ads, and the system doesn't work. So I actually for OTA we record relatively little, but there's some, you know, you can get, uh, Simpsons. And I mean, there's things that you can get in other forms now, but they're, it, I like the serendipity sometimes. And I also like getting something that was live. So if we yeah. want to watch the uh, fireworks on July 4th on television right. uh, or New Year's Eve stuff while we're home or um, yeah, watch the Macy's some news. parade, I can't see, I can't see the yeah. Oscars, but I, you know, I just read about it on Twitter and then it's weird. <laughs> if anything we good want... happens, the clips are on the internet the next day. <laughs> yeah. I should have been watching Eurovision. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. If I watched, All our baseball America. teams are on cable. Right, because like the local broadcasts are on cable, which is super annoying. So I couldn't really see that much more sports. I mean, I could see maybe some golf and some stuff, but, but um, the, the thing is, the costly—it's a one-time cost with a, a OTA, and uh, the home yeah. run is you know below a hundred bucks for the two uh, OTA tuners. Uh, and uh, I thought it'd be—you know—I I definitely wanted to try it out, and then I wound up being so excited about it, I, I reviewed it because they work so well. But I um, like the idea of it being on a on a network instead of yeah. having to keep it like plugged into a Mac Mini that is just running all the time. So. So that's, that's what we did for years. That's very so, intriguing. Well, I think, you know, my wife and I figure, I mean, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I'm going to say it. I think we've saved like $10,000 <laughs> on programming. And it's probably less than that. But we cut the cord a, uh, a decade ago. I want to say in maybe 2006 when the price went up for our basic package went up to like $70 a month or something like that. And it's probably now it's 85 or 90, uh, without a bundle or, and, uh, and we said, all right, we're not gonna do this anymore. And so we bought a Mac. We've actually bought two Mac minis. So we bought the cheapest ones, uh, cause one failed another failed. So we had, but you know, it's like <laughs> 1500 bucks total. We bought some external hard drives that we used for backup as well. So we've invested between that and, you know, we had, we had our Netflix subscription already, so we could still count that, but that's only a few dollars a month now. And we had our Amazon prime. We use that extensively for other things. So at some level, I want to say we've saved at least five to seven thousand dollars over having the equivalent cable subscription uh, because you know we have access to slightly less. And now with Sling TV uh, and um, what this is kind of what we're talking about is Apple's. We still don't know what Apple's going to announce at WWDC. We don't know if they're going to come out with a new Apple TV and uh, new programming or not. 
Yeah, you can save a lot of money when you're cord cutting. It's kind of funny how the companies are figuring out that people want a cord cut to save money, and they're like, so now let's come up with all these extra like bundles and things for a cord cutter. <laughs> so um, eventually, you know, if, if, if you subscribe to all of them, you could just work your way right back up to your cable bill. But that hasn't been my experience. We have not missed any of the stuff that we used to get because there's so much out there that you're, you know – there hasn't been any shows where where I haven't been able to live without them or I haven't been able to get them pretty easily through a lot of different channels. The the biggest problem for me is just managing where all the stuff I want to watch is um, more than, you know, how am I going to get it and do I have to pay for it? So Here's the critical thing. It's the most important thing that you can only get over the air. You know what it is? What? Jeopardy. <laughs> they have some old Jeopardy on uh, Crackle. My husband watches old Jeopardy on Crackle sometimes on the Apple TV. I might show up there occasionally. Sometimes they rerun my episodes. I occasionally hear from people say, I just saw you in Jeopardy. And I ask, was it a Saturday? And they say, yes. So occasionally we run those. <laughs> and I hope they don't rerun one of the three games I played because it was one of the worst games of Jeopardy ever. It used to be there were more programs that were syndicated. You can always get them over the air, and that included Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune, but now there's very few like that. So for Jeopardy fans, you've got to have over the air. Good to know. Well, having saved all this money, we'll go spend it on frivolous things now. The thing is, replacement services, if we round up subscribing to Sling TV and Netflix and Hulu Plus, we're still going to wind up paying less because even if it's another $20 a month, that's versus $70 or $80 a month for the fire hoses that we get from Comcast. I'd rather have less selection and pay more precisely for what we get. Yeah. I can only watch so much. <laughs> I've only got so many hours in the day. So, yeah. As a cable company said during a lawsuit over replay TV, is it permitted to skip commercials? Well, no. Well, what about bathroom breaks? Well, those might be okay, but, but they have to be reasonable. It's their world and we're just living in it. <laughs> so Susie and I have solved the world's problems again in this episode, and we'd like to hear more from you about what you'd like us to solve. You can email us at podcast at macworld.com. You can find this podcast at macworld.com where you can comment on it and let us know what you think. We're always interested in ideas of things we can talk about here. You can find the show notes at iTunes or in your favorite podcast app or at macworld.com for the entry for this podcast. You'll find the links to Jason's column, all the articles we talked about, and more in the show notes. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And Susie, great to talk to you again. Good to talk to you, as always. A pleasure. And thanks also to Red Hat for sponsoring this week's episode. This has been episode 458 of the Macworld Podcast for May 27th, 2015. I'm Glenn Fleischman, and thanks for listening. <laughs>